0: Mark chapter 2. Here's a fun fact. It took us 6 weeks to get through Mark chapter 1. There's 16 chapters in Mark, so that totals 96 weeks, which is about 24 months to get through Mark. We're going to pick up the pace a little bit, all right? We're not going to do 24 months. We're going to do about 10 months in Mark, 11 months in Mark. But uh, I'm just having so much fun week to week studying and digging into the text. And and so for today, and, and kiddos, if you've got your sheets to follow along with, the, the title of the sermon is The Purpose of Jesus. So you can write that right in there in the blank. The Purpose of Jesus, we're going to be looking at Mark 2, 1 through 17. So throughout all of history... Since the birth of Jesus, many different religions, many different philosophies, and all different people have looked at Jesus and asked questions. Who is this Jesus? Why did this Jesus come? What is the purpose of Jesus Christ? And again, from these different religions and philosophies and backgrounds, you're going to see a variety of different answers. And, and even in today's age, uh, we may not explicitly say some of these things, but we all have heard a variety of answers to who this Jesus Jesus is and what his purpose is. Uh, You may have heard that Jesus is nothing more than a hippie teacher dude with long flowing locks walking through a field of lilies who's come and his purpose is to bring us enlightenment. He's supposed to have these kind of quippy little one-liners of enlightenment for us and he's nothing more than an equal to like the Dalai Lama or the Buddha. Uh, You may have heard that like Jesus is my homeboy. When I was growing up, man, that was a big deal. Like shirts and everything, Jesus is my homeboy. But here's what we mean by Jesus is my friend. We mean friend in in kind of the modern use of that term where a friend is kind of unrelenting in their support of me. A friend is totally tolerant of anything I wanna be, say or do. And the second you disagree with me, that's when the divorce is coming. we're, We're done here. That's not what a friend should be. And so Jesus in that view, is nothing more than a divine cheerleader whose life conforms to mine, not my life conforming to his. You may hear that Jesus is like this angelic figure. He's kind of uh, an inspirational figure. Uh, He's got a special connection to God, but he's not quite God, more than a man, but not God himself. And he's supposed to be kind of this inspirational model to us of showing us how to live. Uh, You may have heard that Jesus is just one among the pantheon of gods, that he is equal to Allah and he's equal to all the Hindu gods and he just finds his place somewhere in there and you can put him in the Rolodex of who you want to worship at any given time. You may hear or you may believe that Jesus is kind of a hobby in your life, that I get to pick him up and put him down like a toy, like he's come kind of yo-yo, except when I get bored with him, he goes back in the toy box You may have heard that Jesus is some kind of divine benefactor, that my relationship to him is purely transactional and and he needs to be useful to me, that he should be a benefactor when it helps me capitalistically or relationally or in my networks or politically. And his purpose in my life is to gain me money and influence. And again, all of those are patently false and total misconceptions about who Jesus is Is and what the purpose of Jesus is. Listen, if Jesus is just our teacher and not our God, we will not obey his teachings wholeheartedly. If Jesus is just our homeboy and not our Lord, we're gonna throw him out when his demands rub up against our idolatry. If Jesus is just this inspirational angelic figure and not our savior, then we're gonna look to other things to save us. If Jesus is just one among the pantheon of gods and not the only true God, then we're going to lead ourselves into total destruction. If Jesus is just our hobby and not our king, when ordinary Christianity sets in, we're going to set him down for the next best thing. If Jesus is just our divine benefactor and not our sovereign, then we're going to dump him for the thing that advances my causes more than loyalty to him. So, who is this Jesus? What is the purpose of this Jesus? Well, the main point, right? Jesus came to save sinners. All right, kiddos, right there at the bottom of your sheet, you're gonna see five central truths in Story Kids and circle that one. Jesus came to save sinners. This is the purpose of Jesus. So i want gonna start, and what we're gonna do today we're going to kind of jump around this passage a little bit. We're going to walk through it narratively and I'll, I'll hit certain passages. But where I want to start is Mark chapter two. I'm going to read verses nine through 11. So read that with me. Jesus is speaking to, to the scribes and he says this, which is easier to say to the paralytic your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. The phrase I wanna focus in on there is that phrase, son of man. We've talked about this several times. Here's what Jesus is doing with that phrase. He is making a claim to his total divinity, that Jesus is not simply like God, but Jesus is God. And Jesus doesn't just channel authority once in a while, but Jesus possesses total authority because Jesus is God in the flesh. That Jesus can't just heal and forgive sins once in a while as a channel of God's power, but Jesus possesses and embodies God's power because he is God. And so he came to save sinners. Jesus and Jesus alone has the authority and the power and the ability to look at the paralytic and not just say you're here, yield, but also to say, your sins are forgiven. Jesus came to save sinners. So Jesus is not just our teacher, our homeboy, this inspirational figure, a God among other gods, a cheerleader, a hobby, or a divine benefactor. Jesus is nothing less than God. synonyms of God are Lord, King, Sovereign, Savior, Supreme, Ruler of all. And the good news about Jesus as God is that he is not an unloving and an unkind God. Jesus is not scared of sinners, but Jesus came to rescue sinners, and he moves with a heart of love. His impulse is to move towards us in our sin, to move towards us in our brokenness. We've seen that on display throughout Mark. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at five different categories of people that Jesus came to save, the purpose of Jesus. Let's see these categories together. All right, Mark chapter two, let's read verse five together. And when Jesus saw their faith, I'll tell that story here in a second, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. All right, first people group that Jesus came for. Jesus came for the unsaved. All right, So many of us have set up these kind of schemes of salvation, we'll call it, in our minds. Most of these schemes of salvation are not explicitly said. They're not conscious. They're just kind of implicit and subconscious. If you want to know what your particular scheme of salvation is, then fill in this phrase, if blank, then blank. Here's what I mean by that. How we fill in that phrase shows us what we're looking to for salvation, what we're looking to for rescue, what we're looking to for hope on a broader kind of cultural level across our nation. Here's the things that are schemes of salvation. If only everyone was as woke as me, then we would be in a better place. If everyone was as educated as me, then our nation would be rescued. If everyone was as patriotic as me, then we would finally find our footing again as a nation. That's kind of some broader schemes of salvation. But internally and individually, we all do this. If I only had the job, the money, the girl, the guy, the power, the education, the influence, then I would have hope or joy, or peace, or rest. How we fill in this phrase shows these little schemes of salvation that we have in our own minds. But here's the truth, it's all a facade. And the goal line is always moving back, right? You get the girl and then you need something else. Let me put my own marriage on display here for a second. Katie got the guy, right? She got him for a moment. I was everything she dreamed of and more for about four and a half seconds. And then she realized I'm a guy, which means I'm a different gender than her. And I think differently than her. Here's some examples of what that looks like. When telling a man a story, here's what we need. Intro, climax, conclusion. Okay, should take about two minutes. Give me me 120 seconds, give me the whole thing and some high points of this. Now, my wife, love her to death, here's what we got. We got the intro, then we got a couple rabbit trails, then we get back in, we get to the climax at some point, and then I'm not sure if there's ever truly a conclusion to that thing, and so it's kind of this like two or three minute story could take 20, 30 minutes. Well, early in our marriage, really impatient, really bad at listening, I told her that, right? Like, come on, cut this down a lot here she's like, I'm not your business partner, bro. Let's talk. Let's build a relationship. She doesn't call me bro. Um, If anyone's ever heard of a Dutch oven and not the cooking utensil, the other kind, she didn't find that as funny as I did. Where should our money go? Should our money go towards a $7 million white rug that needs to be cleaned every six months to the tune of $300 a pop with a three-year-old and a five-year-old that are always filthy? Or should our money go to groceries? You tell me, all right? So we have some disagreements. She gets the guy and then the goal line moves because she realizes the guy is not enough and the guy is not her salvation. That's just jokey jokey way to say it. But here's the truth. Jesus and Jesus alone has the power and the ability to declare salvation. Uh, Timothy tells us that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. John 3 tells us that Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world but to save the world from perishing. Jesus' plan of redemption is clear across the New Testament. He came for the unsaved to provide them with salvation. Now here's where our schemes of salvation come in. Do we know that it is Jesus and Jesus alone that can give us salvation? Do we know and are we aware of our true need for soul level healing, soul level salvation? Or do we think all of these lesser things can save us momentarily and pacify us from this broken world? Now, here's what's happening in this story. There's a paralytic, and the reputation of Jesus is growing across all these towns, and he's garnering crowds, and he's getting, he's becoming famous. And this paralytic hears, "Hey, that, that Jesus man, he he can heal me. He can get me to walk. I've never walked before." So he makes a beeline to Jesus. Jesus is in a home, and he's teaching, and the house is bursting at the seams. So the guy he tries the front door, he tries the back door, he tries to climb in through the window, but there's no way in. So he grabs his butt and he says, let's get up on that roof. Let's cut a hole in the roof. And then his friends lower him down to the feet of Jesus. This man knew that he had needs that only Jesus could meet. He was aware of his position in life. He tried and tried and tried to heal himself and get himself to walk, but he could not do it. Only Jesus could do it. He showed a type of desperation and focus on Jesus that all of us need that we all know that we have sin-sick hearts and Jesus and Jesus alone can look at us and say, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. First, Jesus came for the unsaved. Next, what we're gonna see is that Jesus came for the unlikely. Uh, We're gonna read verses 10 and 11 again here for a second. Uh, Jump over to 10 and 11. Jesus, again, speaking to the scribes and he says, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the son of man has an authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Read read verse 12 with me as well. And he, the paralytic rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and they all glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now, the story keeps going. The man gets lowered to the feet of Jesus. He gets healed and the scribes, remember the scribes are the religious elite. Uh, They're incensed at what they're seeing. And before we get mad at the scribes for for getting mad at Jesus, let's put ourselves in their shoes for a second. These scribes have spent their lives saturating in the Old Testament, teaching the Old Testament, teaching in the synagogues. And they were well aware of who the Old Testament Messiah would be, who that guy would be when he came on the scenes. They have spent years waiting for this Messiah, teaching about this Messiah. And they know that the claim to be the Messiah is the claim to be God himself. And Jesus, when he's forgiving sins, is making a claim to be God himself. And, and yet what we see is they're incensed because Jesus does not match up with the Messiah that they were expecting to see. I mean, imagine for a second that you get uh, invited to a dinner party. You all sit around a table. Some dude walks in, he sits down at the table. He points his finger at you and says, your sins are forgiven. How would you respond to that? Be like, dude, you're weird. I'm out of here. Like, you, you don't know me come on. And so this is what's going on here. And so Jesus perceiving the confusion of the scribes, perceiving the anger from the scribes, he's going to do two things. He's going to call that to the surface. He's going to say, okay, you guys are confused about me. You've seen me heal this man, but what's more important? Me healing this man or forgiving his sins. He is making a claim again to being God himself. Not only Jesus says, can I forgive sins, but I'm gonna authenticate my forgiveness of sins by healing this man's legs. And he's gonna get up and walk. And everyone's watching this and they're amazed. And as we'll see through the the narrative of Mark, the scribes are not amazed, but rather they're offended and territorial. Why? Why? Because Jesus did not match up with their expectations. Jesus was not who they expected to be the Messiah. What's up, buddy? You coming to preach with me? Everything about the ministry of Jesus is unlikely. Jesus, it comes from an unlikely town in an unlikely time doing unlikely ministry. He's an unlikely Messiah saving unlikely people. Everything about the ministry of Jesus is beyond belief, improbable, and unexpected. You see, the people that Jesus targets for his ministry are totally unlikely, if Jesus would have just come and gathered all the scribes into some kind of religious enclave then that was separate from the rest of the world, then truth be told, Jesus would have never been killed. Jesus would not have been killed if he created some kind of religious camp with just the scribes, but that's not who he came for. Jesus did not come for the religious elite. He didn't come for the know-it-alls. Jesus didn't come for the I got it together. Jesus didn't come for the I'll figure it out. Jesus didn't come for the don't mess with me. Jesus came for the unlikely. We have seen over and over again just in one chapter of Mark, Jesus moving towards and having compassion towards the absolute worst. He goes to the man with a demon in the middle of the synagogue and moves towards him. The leper who should be outcast from society and moves towards him. And now the sinners and the paralytics and he moves towards them. Jesus ministers to the unlikely. That would be like Jesus coming on the scene the Southern California going to LAPD homicide and saying, give me your worst and looking that man in the eyes and saying, your sins are forgiven, you're mine. This would be like Jesus going to Skid Row and finding the most addicted and downtrodden and saying, hey, you're with me. This would be like Jesus going to the most isolated town, to the most isolated home, to the most lonely of widows and saying, come and follow me. You are mine. And even as I say those things, I'm in disbelief, but that's exactly who Jesus came for, the person that's most unexpected and most unlikely. But the truth is, friends, the only difference in this story between the scribes and the paralytic is that the scribes could walk. They were just as full of sin and just as in need of salvation as everyone else, even if they were the religious elite. And friends, there is nothing uniquely different between you and me and the man on death row, the person on skid row, or the lonely widow. We're all desperately in need of the ministry of Jesus. Come on. Hey, buddy. Oh, you're gonna, you're gonna, I got it, it's all right. This is how we do it, right? The unlikely ministry of Jesus, and we should be full of hope because that's who we are. Jesus looks at each of us and says, I love you, you're mine, come with me. His heart is a heart of compassion for his people and the most unlikely of people. Let's keep moving here. Jesus came for the undesirable. Jesus came for the undesirable. Mark chapter two, I'm gonna read verses 13 and 14. Jesus went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Jesus came for the undesirable. Jesus continues to go teaching and walking about towns, and, and he continues to call f- people to follow him. This time, he looks at the man Levi, and he says, follow me. Levi is almost certainly who we know in the Bible as Matthew. And, and Levi would have been the most hated and the most despised and the most undesirable of Jewish society. Why? Well, remember, Jesus is Jewish. He's the fulfillment of Jewish prophecies about the Messiah. He's ministering in Jewish towns, in Jewish synagogues, and he is ministering to Jewish people. This is an overwhelmingly Jew-centric story, and tax collectors were the most despised and undesirable of all Jewish people groups. Ancient Jewish writings actually called tax collectors thieves. They were traitors and abusers of Jewish people. You see, all the tax collectors were actually Jewish, but they were employed by Rome. Rome was a foreign occupying force over Jerusalem and the surrounding regions. And what these tax collectors would do is they would set up a mafia-like system of extortion and of murder to collect money from their Jewish kin. And they would send that money back to Rome. And then what they would also do, these tax collectors, is they would overcharge on taxes to put a little extra cash in their own pockets. Uh, if a tax collector entered into your home and you were Jewish, it was common practice for that house to be called unclean and for you to leave it behind and put it up for sale. Tax collectors were banned from entering synagogues. Now, with all that in mind, Jesus is walking and, 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 and teaching and he spies Levi working in a tax booth. And before all the crowds, he says, hey, Levi, you over there, you're mine, come follow me. The collective gasp would have been audible to all the Jews following Jesus because he is saying, I came for the most despised and undesirable in your society. Now, I hope what this does for you is this moves you with compassion. Man, what's up, buddy? I'm preaching right now, and I'm holding the sun, and I hope you're liking this. I hope this moves you with compassion towards those in your life that you're most at odds with, those you're most annoyed with, those you're not reconciled with, those that you're not sure you can be on the same page. And listen, the division that 2020 caused in families and in friend groups and in churches, this is our opportunity to see Jesus saying, hey, you're hated by all your Jewish family, but you're mine and you're a part of this. We are reconciled, you are restored, come and join us. And what we should do is be moved with compassion, passion in our own lives towards those that we're at odds with, we're unreconciled with, and we should say, hey, there's a greater thing that we have in common. We can focus on all the division. We can focus on all the disagreement, or we can look to Jesus and say, we are united by his gospel. We have the greatest thing in common. Come be a part of this. Let's get together and do this together. The truth is, friends, we should be humbled by this because there is nothing inherently desirable in anything, in any of us. Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount says as much. Jesus doesn't say blessed are those who are talented, amazing, beautiful, and successful. Jesus says blessed are those who are mourning, meek, bankrupt in spirit, and persecuted. The most desperate and undesirable of society is who Jesus says is blessed. So let us look to ourselves, be humbled, and remember, Jesus didn't come for the quarterback and head cheerleader. He came for the water boy and the mascot. Now, if you're a water boy and mascot, not dogging you for that. That's awesome. I was a water boy in junior high, and it was great. All right, let's keep moving here. Jesus came for the undeserving. Jesus came for the undeserving. Read verses 15 and 16 with me. And as he, Jesus, reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus came for the most undeserving. You see, the scribes see Jesus in a home with tax collectors and sinners, and they are, again, confused and incensed by this. There's this controversy growing around who Jesus is and the ministry he does, and they say on repeat, why is he with the tax collectors and sinners? Now, that word sinners, the way in which the scribes would use this is a little bit different than the way we use the term sinners. In a scribe's vocabulary for what they mean by sinners, it would, It would be people who were formerly in good graces. They were allowed to worship in the synagogues, but they did something so wrong in their sin that they would be alienated and rejected from the synagogue, alienated and rejected from community. But here's the key. There would be no hope of restoration for them. These people, these sinners could give all of their time, all of their money, all of their attention, all of their effort to serving the scribes, but nothing they could ever do would earn reconciliation back into Jewish community. And that's who Jesus says, I'm entering your home. I'm eating with you. I'm laughing with you. I'm sharing stories with you. I'm crying with you. To be a sinner in a scribe's vocabulary would be a death sentence with no hope of parole or appeal. And that's exactly who Jesus targeted. (laughs) Come here, buddy. The most undeserving. But here's the truth of the gospel, friends. The gospel is only applied to the most undeserving. Jesus is labeled as the friend of sinners in other gospel accounts. And this is true. He is the friend and we are the sinners. And here's the difference between a definition of sinner for the scribe and sinner for our savior. savior. A scribe says you're alienated, you're rejected, and you will never be reconciled back to community. Jesus says, yes, in your sin, you have alienated yourself from the father and you are rejected from my presence, but there is hope for reconciliation through me the scribe says you have a death sentence with no chance at parole or appeal Jesus says in your sin you have a death sentence but if you appeal to me I will do your time I will pay your price and I will give you my freedom grace is for the undeserving listen church I say this all the time and I want to just keep saying this as long as we're together none of us is awesome all right None of us is that impressive. We're not deserving. We're not successful. What we are, according to the Bible, is sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God, who have missed the mark of following God's commands in obedience. And due to that, we are alienated from God. And due to that, we are separated from God. And due to that, we are deserving of his wrath. And yet, that's the only thing that qualifies us for the ministry of Jesus, the scandalous heart and love of Jesus that moves to the most undeserved of society and says, I'm going to call you to follow me. I'm going to eat with you. I'm going to laugh with you. I'm going to cry with you. I'm going to share stories with you. You are mine. The undeserving grace of God for all of us. Finally, let me close with this. Jesus came for the unwell. The last verse here, verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, these questions from the scribes, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a, phys- of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Jesus hears this line of questioning for the scribes and he finishes with this mic drop moment that is one of my favorite sentences in the Bible. All of this culminates with Jesus saying, I came for the unwell. I came for those who are self-aware of their position in life. Everything we've talked about, the unsaved people, the unlikely people, the undesirable people, the undeserving people, this is who Jesus came for in a sentence, not those who through their own effort have a perception righteousness, but those who know their need for an alien righteousness. Not those who think they got it all together and they're well and healthy, but those who know we are dead in our sin, but Jesus as the physician can come and revive our hearts and give us new life through him. This text is a confrontation of everything that's been ingrained in us since childhood. You're great, You can do anything. Feel good about yourself. Take care of yourself first, then take care of others. You deserve the good life. Everything should be easy for you. When it's hard, you should give up. In a way, this text should be an assault on our modern sensibilities, where our modern sensibilities say, we're all awesome, we all deserve everything amazing, and if it doesn't come our way, then something's wrong with someone else. And this text says, no, 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 we are unlikely, undeserving, undesirable. And yet that's who Jesus came for. He came for the unwell. Here's the truth. If the gospel that we believe is nothing different than Tony Robbins mumbo jumbo, then it's no gospel at all. If the gospel we're hearing is no different than a conference at an essential oils conference or a a a speech at an essential oils conference, it is no gospel at all. The gospel says, no, 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 you are spiritually sick and dead. You are unrighteous, but there is this physician who has come to make you well. And there's this God who has come to give you his righteousness that you have fallen short, but he has not. And he has come to clothe you in his performance in his power and in his righteousness. Jesus is this physician and Jesus is the only one who can help us. You see, the overarching question of this text is, will we humble ourselves and be honest with ourselves enough to see ourselves in this text? Do we see ourselves as the hero of this text? Are we Jesus? Or do we see ourselves as the paralytic, desperately in need of healing, desperately in need of forgiveness, doing anything to get to Jesus? Uh, Pastor John Tyson tweeted this a couple of weeks ago. He says this, Jesus does not save the person you're pretending to be. Come as you are. You see, the truth is, if we're honest in our heart of hearts, in the thoughts we don't share with anyone, in the sleepless nights, the dark nights of the soul, we all know we're the paralytic. We all know we need Jesus. We all know we're unwell, in need of the great physician. The question is, are we going to be honest enough, stop pretending, and come to Jesus? because his heart is moved with compassion and healing and forgiveness towards that exact person. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that we were totally unlikely, and yet that's who he came for. We thank you that we were totally undeserving, and yet he gave us his grace. We thank you that... Gosh, we were so undesirable in our sin. And yet Jesus' heart is moved towards the tax collectors and sinners like us. And so God, I pray you would humble us. You would make us more like the the paralytic in this story, aware of our need, desperate for Jesus, that we would stop pretending, take the mask off and be honest with who we are and what we need and would we run to Jesus and we would find this Jesus not unloving, not unkind, but a heart of compassion moving towards his people. Father, we love you. We thank you. Christ's name. Amen.